0: Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here for uh, another installment in Ecclesiastes. I didn't know how Ecclesiastes would go, but it seems like we've hit on something, haven't we? Or rather, God has touched a nerve in us in this book already, and I'm excited because I love this book. I feel like God has spoken to me as I studied it, and um, I'm excited to share with you. I'm Steve, senior pastor here. Now, uh, back in 1985, back to the dark ages, One of the biggest blunders happened in business history when uh, Coke decided to replace uh, their Coca-Cola with a new version that they dubbed New Coke. Um, They did it because every blind taste test suggests that people like a sweeter Cola. And even their numerous taste tests that they did internally confirmed that people loved new Coke over this older formula. And so they were shocked when people did not. Um, They were shocked at the level of fervor and rebellion that resulted from them pulling Coke from the shelves and putting new Coke there instead. And initially, they received only 5,000 angry calls per day which eventually ballooned 8,000 in the coming months. I mean, protests were, were uh, launched and coordinated against Coke, telling them what to do. And so in the midst of the fervor, the story goes that they brought in a strategic planning consultant named Mike Cammie. Now, Mike is brilliant. And he is demanding and he is intuitive. In fact, he was the chief strategic planner for two smaller companies that made good, maybe you've heard of them, IBM and Xerox. And the companies relayed to him that their core mission, their driving force was simply great taste. And that's what led them to the fateful decision of pulling Coke and putting new Coke on its shelves. And Mike, being the guy that he is, the sharp tack that he is, said, you must have put the wrong word in the box, guys. And so the executives, they went back to the drawing board, and after several hours, they came back and put something else in their box. American tradition. They had realized that people do not just taste with their mouths, but with their hearts as well and pulling the original Coca-Cola from the shelves was akin to tampering with an American institution like motherhood or apple pie. And so, finding the right word in the box, that thing that they could center their company on, that enabled them to quickly recover from that blunder and regain momentum by, yes, reintroducing Coke Classic. But it turns out that companies are not the only ones who have to answer the question of what goes in the box. Each and every one of us has to answer that as well. We all have to decide what we're going to center our life on. What's going to be the driving force of our life? And if we don't consciously decide to put something in our box, our box, it acts like a vacuum and and sucks something into it because we all have an internal box. We all have to center our lives on something. It's part of what it is to be human. And if you were here last week, it's just one of the many ways that we try to deal with life being fleeting and being elusive. So, What goes in our box? That question is what drives the preacher of Ecclesiastes. To give a bunch of different options a whirl in the next section of Ecclesiastes, he, he dons the persona of Solomon for us in the ultimate quest of life by trying out a whole different set of options for what could go in the box, and then he reflects on it. And he tells us what gain comes from it. In that way, we can learn from his experiences instead of having to learn the hard way. And if we've actually tried out what the preacher talks about, we can even reflect alongside of him what true prophet came with those different things in the box. After all, as Solomon, he can go further down this road of those experiences than any of us possibly could. And so what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to take out your Bible And find this quest for life and the profit of different things in the box. I want you to find your way to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And we're going to work our way all the way through to chapter 2, verse 26. That's right, this is a rather large chunk. But remember what I said last week, you know, in Ecclesiastes, sometimes we have to see the bigger forest of wisdom so that we don't get lost in these depressing patches that are there in there. But we're going to start off in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, page 553 in those blue Bibles, and underneath the chairs in front of you. So I want you to focus here. I want you to concentrate. I want you to listen to the preacher's ultimate quest for life and different options that he puts in this box and what actually happens and Derek North is going to read for us and then afterwards we're going to work our way and pick our way through this section so Derek
1: Ecclesiastes 1:11 through 226 I the preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all. Who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had a great experience with wisdom and knowledge and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly and I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind for in much wisdom Is much vexation and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow I said in my heart come now I will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity I said of laughter it is mad and of pleasure what use is it I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay a hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, all the toil that I had expended in doing it. and Behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes After the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than there is in folly. And there is more gain in light than there is in dark. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me, Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun is grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also was vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also i saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Who can find enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Derek. Not bad, huh? But that's the preacher's quest for life. Now, let's pick our way through this section and and get a hold of what he is talking about. Initially in the quest, uh, the preacher puts uh, wisdom into the box. He does that here, and then he picks it up again in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And of course, this is the one of uh, Solomon's most famed characteristics, and so it isn't surprising that the preacher would begin with Solomon's persona that, and then even return to this part in chapter 2. Wisdom wasn't something that Solomon simply tinkered with. It was not a half-hearted fashion. He threw himself into wisdom, and it says here, in chapter in verse 13, it says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I mean, from the hard sciences to the soft sciences, from arts to philosophy and theology, from math to ethics, he studied it all and he eclipsed the brainiacs of his world as we discover in 1 Kings. Listen to this. It says, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and Kalkal and Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Do you know who those ancient scholars are? I don't, I don't either. But, but... They were like the Aristotle, Marie Curie, Sigmund Freud, Neil deGrasse Tyson of his day. And he was acing grad school while they were playing with arithmetic. This is rarefied air for an academic here. And he went further down this road of learning and wisdom than any of us could possibly go. Wish you had another degree? Solomon had it. Uh, wish you uh, had another area to study? He already covered it. You know, what do you wish that you could get another research project, another postdoc placement? Solomon already had it, and his verdict of education in the box. Admittedly, it's profitable. I mean, when the preacher picks up this idea in chapter two. He acknowledges that there is benefit and wisdom with education. He says, um, He says this. He says, Excuse me, in in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness. I think it's right there. There we go. Right? Right? Education and wisdom is better than no education or folly, just as light is better than darkness. In light, we clearly see and navigate without any real trouble, while in darkness, we can't see and we stub our toe. And the same good dynamic is at work with education and with wisdom. However, that does not go to say that wisdom belongs in our box. Any more than great taste belonged in Coke's box. Bluntly put, education and wisdom is vanity and chasing after the wind, the preacher concludes, because it suffers in a couple of key ways. For one, studying wisdom arouses increasing frustration, he says. He says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I mean, we commonly say that ignorance is bliss, right? But this is telling us that the opposite is true as well. Knowledge is misery. The more you know, the more miserable you are. After all, the more we know, the more hardship we are cued into and that we're familiar with. And with the more we know, the greater the burden is to have responsibility for. And what is even more frustrating is that the more we know is the more we realize how much we really don't know. (laughs) With that goal line of actually knowing, like moving faster than we can possibly learn it. It's what I experienced when, you know, I studied applied math and got a master's degree in it. It's It's what I discovered as I was studying theology and got a master's degree in that as well. But isn't that also what you find in education? That's why education that's why it, and wisdom, it lacks the gravitas to be in our box. But for another, wisdom suffers from not helping us to elude death and create a legacy. Verse 16, it says, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies, just like the fool. The wise and the fool die, as do the educated and the uneducated, the smart and the stupid, the ones with lots of degrees on their wall and one with none. Both fade into obscurity like your great-grandparents have in your memory. You see... Education and wisdom is great. It's great because it's better than darkness. However, it suffers for increasing sorrow and being unable to do anything about our mortality and death. And so it doesn't go in our box as something to center our life on. You know, that thinking of, you know, if I just got that degree, then I'd be happy. Or that sense of believing that life will actually start once we get that new research project or have more papers published. Or once we learn or understand that one thing that seems to be a tough nut to crack. All of that is delusional, to be perfectly blunt. Because that's operating with wisdom inside our box. That's the preacher's experience and conclusion, which is something that, you know, if we're honest with, it's kind of what we feel as well. That's why he moves on to another option. Uh, Pleasure is what he puts in the box. This is how he puts it in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so he puts pleasure in his box. In various and sundry forms. Whether it be counted highbrow or lowbrow, he gives full vent to his flickering wants and all his deep-seated desires. Think of this chapter of Solomon's quest like the cookie monster on Sesame Street, right? The cookie monster's basic strategy in life is to see cookie, eat cookie, and then find more cookies, Right? This is that chapter of Preacher Solomon Quest. See pleasure, feel pleasure, pleasure, and then look for more pleasure. And so underneath this umbrella of pleasure, he tries out wine, it says in verse 3. He, he dips himself into that pleasure as he drinks his fill, both as a connoisseur that enjoys the wide variety and distinctive tastes of wine, as well as a drunkard enjoying the pleasure of inebriation. And then he moves on to achievement in verses 4 to 6. He sets out to achieve by making great works of, of houses and vineyards, gardens and parks and orchards. And so magnificent are those achievements and works that the only language he could use to capture what he was getting at was ones used to describe the Garden of Eden itself. And so in a manner of speaking, his achievements, they, they rose so high that it touches the underneath of paradise and heaven itself. Put that into perspective for our sense of achievement. I mean, what achievement have you set out to reach? What grades or degrees? What what notoriety or awards? Solomon's leaps and bounds beyond that. His building projects that he sought to achieve took 13 years to complete, tells us in 1 Kings 7. And he needed a construction crew of nearly 200,000 men, according to 1 Kings 5. And so it's no wonder that his achievements brought incredible pleasure with echoes of heaven on earth. And so he moves on to wealth in verses 7 and 8. Lots and lots of zeros were in his portfolio. Slaves and herds and flocks, precious metals and treasure... The size of his investments, his holding, his cold hard cash eclipsed anyone who came before him. And to give us a sense of it, 1 Kings 10, we're told that his income was 25 tons of gold per year from plunder and extraction from foreign nations. And so in today's economy, I did some quick calculations here. That's about $1.5 billion each year. That was his income. And silver, it was said, was so plentiful that it was like stones in his kingdom. In the yearly list of the world's most wealthy, Solomon would have topped it without any rival anywhere close. And so he enjoyed the pleasure of getting that monthly statement. You know, seeing how much money he had, how quickly it was growing. So he moves on to the pleasure of music. In verse 8, in a world devoid of demand, on-demand music like we have today, music was a treat to the deafening silence around them, and so he amassed singers and musicians as his own personal Spotify and beat headphones to go with it, uh, to enjoy the pleasure of background music for work and play, inspiration for worshiping and uh, working out. Entertainment for evenings alone or with dinner parties that he would throw. And then he moves on to the pleasure of sex in verse 8. In First Kings 11, we learn that he had 700 wives and 300 mistresses at his disposal. He had access to sex and lust that eclipses, you know, our own porn being a click away. Because every sexual desire, fetish, fantasy was at his disposal to bring him pleasure. And then he moves on to success in verse 9. He became great, he says, greater than any king before him. In fact, Israel was never larger, more influential, more significant than it was under Solomon. He was the apex of success. You know, the Tim Cook, the Warren Buffett, the Jay-Z of his world. And his conclusion, after putting this much pleasure, this far-reaching of pleasure in his box, this is what he concludes in verses 11 and 12, or 10 and 11, excuse me, chapter 2. He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. That is, he did experience pleasure (laughs) he's admitting to that, a sense of delight, a thrill in his soul, a feeling of glee, to be sure there is pleasure in pleasure, he says, just like we'd expect. But then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying, ultimately, pleasure was fleeting and elusive. It was akin to chasing the wind. And granted, pleasure in that box, it was good. And finding expression for whatever desire was roaming around, it carried a sense of delight. However, However, that pleasure lasted only so long as Cookie Monster had a cookie. And even then, the chocolate chip cookies began to lose their thrill and intrigue. Because eventually, if you've had one, Kind of had them all, no matter how good they may be. And when cookies were unavailable or repeats as they always do, putting pleasure in the box, even in its multifaceted form, was akin to chasing the wind. It was hollow and empty. Pleasure is good in the right context, but not great. Enough to rule our life. Any desire we have isn't great enough to substantially define our identity, give our life shape, provide lasting joy. Not any of the options the preacher tried out. Not any of the desire for pleasure that we might. Have And so looking inside for who we are with the shape of our desires and then expressing those desires and and looking to have them filled in this world is the surest route to chasing after the wind, never being satisfied, wondering what's wrong with our life and even hating ourselves for not being able to make life work. Nothing is wrong with life. It's just that pleasure doesn't go in the box. It's good, but it's not great enough, and that's why the preacher moves on to another option for his box: uh, work. Nine times in verses eighteen to twenty-three, the preacher talks about all the work that he's been done that he's done. But he doesn't refer to it as work in chapter 2 there. His favorite choice of word there is to call it toil. Because work in our box transforms itself from the good thing it is into a tyrannical boss. Here's how the preacher put it in verses 22 and 23. He says this. He says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Put work in the box, and it will demand you work your fingers to the bone. Nothing will ever be good enough. Nothing will ever be enough. Days off are an unimaginable luxury, as is a vacation without a phone. Retirement is a death sentence. And that's just the good stuff. Right? The worst part, verses 18 and 19, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. After all the struggle and all the toil, death will come, he says. And any achievement made, any business built, any fortune would be handed off to someone else. And who knows if they'll care for it the way we do. Who knows if they'll appreciate it the way we do. Who knows if they will try to be wise with what we have built. If you ever visit Stockholm, uh, you might want to spend the night on Lake Malloran on this yacht. Uh, currently, this yacht is a cozy bed and breakfast there. has 61 rooms, uh, one suite for the owner, one restaurant, and one bar. Uh, the yacht is actually docked in a place that is a short walk to the heart of Stockholm, practically in the shadow of City Hall, where the Nobel Prize is awarded each year. Uh, Had you been in Hong Kong on May 27th, 2014, you could have bid at Sotheby's auction for a magnificent pair of imperial rose peach dishes. They date from the Yongzhen period and come with those very distinctive markers there. Can you see them? Of the period. Stunning. And to think, it only would cost you 5.9 million dollars the gay Lebrun's 1787 painting of her daughter, Julia, Julie holding a mirror. It's an excellent example in the art world of maternal love and artistic excellence. And right now, that painting hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And no, it is not available to be lent out to you for your living room. And for all you rail fans out there, you might consider staying in Manon's business car number three. I believe it's still active, and it sounds like a wonder to ride in. It features a master bedroom, a roomette, a fold-down Murphy bed, one convertible sofa, a marble tub, a dining room, meal service, an observation lounge, an open rear platform, and many of the modern technology features, and all within an interior of rare golden heart oak, they say. Now, you might ask what these things have in common, and Tommy Nelson would tell you that Barbara Hutton owned all of those. And she's the heiress and daughter of the tycoon F.W. Woolworth, who worked his fingers to the bone to open 1,000 five-and-dime stores in the day, amass a fortune of today's equivalent of about a billion dollars. And a part of his fortune went to Barbara Hutton, who bought all of this stuff, And much more, she also gave herself to alcohol and drugs, which led her down to whittling that fortune down to a mere $3,000 by the time she died. And so her father worked so hard to build and hand over to his daughter when he died, he would have died a second death, wouldn't he have? (laughs) Knowing his heiress had squandered it. You see, no matter what angle we look at, work does not go in the box. Don't misunderstand the preacher here. He's not saying that work is bad. On the contrary, work is good. But work is a bad boss. It's tyrannical. And whatever we do gain from it ultimately will be handed off to someone else who won't use the kid gloves we wish they would. All of that is why work shouldn't be elevated to some, from something good we experience to enhance human society, to give ourselves purpose at some level, to a boss where we put it in our box. So, is anyone sick of this exercise right now? <laughs> right? I mean, do you feel like this whole endeavor is played out and Steve, stop talking already? You know? You think you're funny, but not that funny guy. Okay, right? I do. I'm the one who wrote this and is preaching this right now. And that's the preacher's point. This whole time he's been chasing life with things in the box like he's wily Coyote chasing down the roadrunner. And it's fruitless. And it's exhausting, just like so many of us are because we've been on that same chase. So the preacher, he finally stops chasing life. And he positions himself to receive life as from God. And here's how he puts it in verses 24 to 26. That's what he says. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. This line of thinking should become a bit of a shock for us. Up to this point in Ecclesiastes and going back all even in last week the preacher has avoided talking much about God have you noticed that? And when he did God appears oppressive and frustrating but all of that was because he was chasing after life and feeling like he was chasing after the wind. And once the preacher stops chasing and starts receiving then he suddenly sees God for who he is and his goodness and his sovereignty for life as it is for us in fleeting and being elusive. Once he puts God in the box and looks to God in dependence, that's when he can receive God's gift in life without having to control it, without having to try to manipulate it and make it something that it isn't meant to be. Now, maybe that sounds far too passive to you. But it's only as passive as a catcher in baseball is passive. In baseball, a catcher is in on every play, receiving the ball from the pitcher. But they do so without setting the pace, making the game happen because they depend on the pitcher to do that. And so the preacher finally lands on putting God in the box. To position himself in a place of dependence and receiving from God what wisdom what knowledge, what joy comes in life. And he commends it to us as well in saying, put God in your box. Recognize your dependence on God. Look to center him, look to, looking to him to center your life on him as the driving force of life. And that means looking to God in dependence for forgiveness of our sin and relational wholeness with God by receiving Jesus and what he did in living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died on the cross. And and then in that same manner that we receive that from God, we continue to look to God in dependence to receive the rest of life as well. We don't stop. Like a catcher looking for God to pitch his wisdom his knowledge, and his joy to us. And for sure, we have to stick around for more from the preacher in Ecclesiastes for how exactly we go about this in life, but for now, it's worth kind of hitting the pause button here and asking ourselves whether God is in our box or not and being honest about it. If we're positioning ourselves in a place of dependence on God to receive from him, or we're chasing life, and even functionally so as Christians... when I was asking myself those kinds of questions as I was studying this passage, I began to look at a lot of the emotions that I'm having with this rise in COVID. Um, And to be honest, you know, I felt pretty anxious about it uh, for me and for the church. And I felt frustrated and disappointed with God over what looks like steps backwards to me, you know, because I would like progress in this, you know, masking and vaccines and, and boosters, you know, moving us forward. And for sure, I mean, a lot of those emotions, they are expected and they're normal in a pandemic. However, to be honest, can I be honest here? Part of that, part of that was me chasing life. Me trying to control how it should go. How it should go in this church. Instead of sitting in a place of dependence and receiving from God, And sure, I mean, there's still effort to give in work and life. I'm not saying that, you know. And there's still attention I have to give to take care of myself. I get that. But even in a pandemic, I realize that there are pitches to receive from God that have nothing to do with COVID. I just have to be present enough to catch them without rushing past them in life. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, those moments of wisdom and knowledge he's given. As I continue to study the scriptures and trace God's larger storyline that is so much bigger than this COVID pandemic. As I remember the cross reflecting how God loves me and not gauging his love by my circumstances. Those moments of wisdom and knowledge he's also given us as, as I sense God's leading for that like, next step I got to take as I read, practice my craft, listen to other people to learn from them. And then there are also these moments of joy, you know, that he's also given. If I just pay, I kind of pay attention. You know, seeing the beautiful electric red sunsets as I walk out my office to get to my car in the evening. The real pleasure that I derive in feeding my fish in the morning who go berserk when I put food in there. Like they, They're like piranhas, right? Eating really good food with my wife and my son and talking about our days. The real encouragement that I get from my wife and my staff and my friends when I have emotionally brooding times that I try to hide. Now, all that goes to say, I don't ignore the bad things. It just means that I've had to do some internal slowing to be present to catch what God is throwing my way. Some internal thanking of God to help me recognize those pitches as well. But what about you? Enough about me. Are your emotions a reflection of what is a normal response going on, or might there be something more underneath? A chasing of life, a seeking to control and even manipulate life. Maybe this sense of dependence is something that we've got to come back to with God. Maybe we need to stop obsessing over the bad news and making sure that it all turns out good and look to simply for God's pitches of wisdom and knowledge and joy that he throws our way. Maybe this is partly why it's so important for us to be together, to worship together, to remind us that God is still in the business of pitching. He's still pitching. He's on the mound. He's still throwing. And maybe be one another's pitches to each other. Whether that's in person, you know, online, online or good old-fashioned calling on the phone. You see, every one of us has to decide what goes in the box. Theoretically, yes, but also functionally how we actually do life. And to choose anything else than God in our box is to chase after life. Try to control it chasing after the wind, the preacher would tell us. So learn from the preacher's experience here, from his exhausting of that chase to hold life because he's giving us is wisdom when life is fleeting and elusive. And it's a wisdom that has been confirmed over the ages of millions and millions of men and women and preeminently in Jesus Christ himself. So, why don't we pray? And what I want to do is I just want to give you some space for some silence for you to interact with God on this. You know, maybe this is a time where you've never received Jesus into your life, and you want to simply confess your sin to God. You want to receive what Jesus has done, that you might put God in that box. Or maybe, you know, you've just been functionally chasing after life at some level and some venture, and you just kind of want to come back to how we actually are dependent on God. Take a breath and remind yourself that's a breath that God has actually sustained in our life. Or maybe you're not ready for either, and you just need to ask God, you know, God, help me in this moment. Tell me what the next step is, and lead me in that. All right? So let's pause. Let's take some silence, and then I'll close us in prayer. God, our Father, life is exhausting, and you know how tired we actually are, especially now. Because in so many ways, we're chasing after something that we can't grasp in different ways and in different shades. And so, God, my prayer for us is that you would increase our capacity to simply receive from you just as we receive forgiveness just as we receive life God help us to be present that we might catch those pitches you are making to us each and every day in your grace that we might know the wisdom and the knowledge and the joy that comes from you by the power of your spirit and the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf and we pray this all In his name, amen.